You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 71, Britain Prepares to Crush a Rebellion. For the last few weeks, I've been talking about how all the colonies rose up almost simultaneously after the battles of Lexington and Concord, threw out their royal governors and took over their colonies. Officials in London observed the events of 1775 with increasing astonishment and frustration. Everyone was telling King George, Prime Minister Lord North, and Secretary of State Lord Dartmouth that putting a little military pressure on the colonies would force them to back down and everything would return to normal. That was what former Massachusetts Governor Hutchinson was saying in London. That was what the current royal governors in the colonies were telling them. That was what Governor General Gage had told everyone in 1774 before he left for America. That was what Generals Howe, Burgoyne, and Clinton had said in early 1775 before they left for America. That was the consensus of the overwhelming majority in Parliament and the officer corps as well. Yet every attempt to apply military pressure only resulted in the colonists raising their level of defiance. There were, of course, some radical Whigs in Britain who supported the colonies and said that military force was folly. You may recall John Wilkes from way back in episode 31. He was the expelled member of Parliament who went to jail for criticizing the king. By 1775, Wilkes was the elected Lord Mayor of London. His council sent a petition to the king calling for reconciliation and an end to the military occupation in America. The king, of course, responded with disapproval. It would be unfair to the law-abiding members of his empire to compromise with the poorly behaved American colonists. The king and the overwhelming majority consensus in government was that they could not allow the colonies to get their way by firing on regulars. That sort of opposition had to be met with punishing military force. Otherwise, colonies all over the world would start demanding more rights and privileges of their own. The answer had to be military crackdown, and the half measures they had tried so far had failed. Therefore, the ministry needed to spend the fall and winter putting in place the necessary changes for a spring offensive. Now, the only significant military actions in 1775 were Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill. In both battles, General Gage had achieved his nominal objectives, but at an unacceptable cost. Further, he did not seem to be doing anything to take decisive military action against the rebels. He was supposed to have spent 1775 crushing dissent in Massachusetts and the rest of New England, and arresting the most troublesome leaders of the opposition. Instead, he sat in Boston, crying over his difficult situation and demanding more and more soldiers. 
Meanwhile, sedition spread through all the colonies as political protests turned to armed warfare. Bunker Hill was the final straw for the ministry. On August 2nd, three days after receiving General Gage's report on Bunker Hill, Lord Dartmouth ordered his recall to London and put General Howe in charge of the army in Boston. The language for the recall was a return for consultation. Conceivably, they might have considered sending him back after consultation. But that was not going to happen. Howe's command would become permanent the following spring. General Gage would never have a field command again. He would remain governor of Massachusetts, though I think that was mostly because there was no point in appointing a replacement until Britain had restored control of the colony. Gage would later receive a promotion to full general, so officials did not consider his service a disgrace, but it was time to give another general a chance to resolve this crisis. General Gage was done. Bunker Hill also made it increasingly clear that the regulars in Boston were not going to be able to break out of the city, at least at current strength. The ministry officials had to choose whether they would consider a political compromise or up their military game to crush a rebellion. As I said, they clearly favored the latter by this time. In July, the king wrote a letter to Lord Sandwich, the first Lord of the Admiralty. Quote, I am of the opinion that when once these rebels have felt a smart blow, they will submit, and no situation can ever change my fixed resolution either to bring the colonies to do obedience to the legislature of the mother country or to cast them off. End quote. Prime Minister North and the rest of the ministry seem to agree on this point. The ministry spent most of the summer and fall preparing to send a massive army to America the following year. The problem was, armies were expensive. The whole point of taxing the colonies in the first place was to pay off the huge debt from the last war. Now the administration was going to spend far more on military than colonial taxes would ever have collected. This was exactly what the Whigs in Parliament had been saying all along. But this fight had moved beyond money by now. It was about setting precedent about who was really in charge. The British Navy began raising and renovating ships for large numbers of troop transports and for sending supplies across the Atlantic to support the larger army that they would have in 1776. Military recruiters also spread all over England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland, raising new regiments and training them for the following year. Throughout the fall, the ministry took additional steps to get on a war footing with America. It ordered Admiral Graves to search all ships coming to America for flintstones, commonly used for ballast. It ordered the Navy to dump any flintstones in deep water to prevent their use in flintlock muskets. They did not want the colonists to find themselves with the flintstones and have a gay old time. Sorry, I'm showing my age with that joke. Kids, ask your grandparents to explain it. Less than a year earlier, Secretary of State Dartmouth had pretty much laughed at Gage's request for 20,000 soldiers. Now the ministry was gearing up to send well over 30,000. They all accepted the premise that they needed to hit the colonists with overwhelming force or this fight could go on for years. The plan went through several tweaks over the course of the fall, 
but generally they planned to send about two-thirds of the troops to New England and one-third to control the colonies to the south. On September 24th, the ministry announced its intention to, quote, carry on the war against America with utmost vigor and to begin the next campaign as early as possible in the spring. The outlines of the plan to be pursued are an army of 18,000 men to be employed in New England and another army of 12,000 men are to act in Virginia and the Middle Provinces. As part of London's efforts to ratchet up the war efforts, on August 23rd, the king issued a royal proclamation formally declaring the colonies in rebellion. The king accused the colonists of disturbing the peace, obstruction of lawful commerce, oppressing their fellow subjects, and now levying war against the British government. The proclamation made clear to the colonies that the king was not ignoring an out-of-control ministry. The king backed the actions of his government and would not tolerate the continued colonial attempts to resist government policy. The proclamation also declared it unlawful for loyal subjects to communicate with the rebels, thus outlawing any back-channel correspondence between the colonies and Britain. About a week later, Pennsylvania Governor Richard Penn, on behalf of the Continental Congress, and Arthur Lee, the colonial agent in London, presented Lord Dartmouth with Congress's Olive Branch petition. You remember the one I discussed a couple of weeks ago, where Congress told the king that he certainly couldn't be supporting the violations of rights and liberties perpetrated by the current ministry, and could he please set things right? Since the king had just proclaimed the previous week that he was in full support of the ministry's action, the success of this petition did not look good. Of course, it did not even get as far as a rejection on the merits. The king refused even to receive the petition, not recognizing the legitimacy of the Continental Congress as a legal body that could petition the king. These actions made clear to everyone on both sides of the Atlantic that neither the king nor his government had any inclination to compromise with the rebels in the colonies. The two bodies were effectively at war, and the colonies would now feel the full military impact of their rebellion. On October 27th, the king reaffirmed this view in an address to the new session of Parliament. And if you want to read the full text of this address, there is a link to it in the transcript that is on my blog at blog.amrevpodcast.com. In the address, the king noted that despite the vague expressions of loyalty to the king, the colonies had created an army and navy, formed their own colonial government independent of royal authority. Their clear intent was to create a, quote, independent empire, end quote, and that was unacceptable. The king noted the moderation and forbearance of Parliament to resolve these ongoing disputes and the colonial refusal to accept reasonable compromises. He would now use decisive force against the colonies until the, quote, unhappy and deluded multitude against whom this force will be directed shall become sensible of their error, end quote. In other words, the gloves were coming off. If the colonies wanted a war, they would get a war. No more discussion, no more tolerating colonial defiance of the king or parliament's authority. So with the king publicly in favor of war, 
most British subjects supported their king. In earlier disputes with the colonies, many British manufacturers and workers sided with the colonies, if only to end trade stoppages that were putting local people out of work. The patriots were counting particularly on the working people of England to stand with them once again, if only for their own economic self-interest. In the intervening years, though, the economics had changed. In 1774, the Russo-Turkish War ended, opening a huge market for British manufactured goods in Eastern Europe. As a result, British workers were not feeling the pain of colonial boycotts against British products. Added to that was the fact that many in Britain were simply tired of colonial complaints. The Tories had done a better job in recent years of painting the colonists as spoiled babies who actually had it better than most British commoners. Support for the colonial cause among the British people plummeted as a result. Now, as I said, a large majority of Parliament supported the plan to take this decisive action against the colonies, especially now that the King had spoken directly and unequivocally on the matter. Still, though, a significant minority thought this plan was the wrong way to go. Among this minority was Lord Dartmouth, who, as Secretary of State for the American Department, would be a key minister in implementing the new policy. Dartmouth decided he could not do this and resigned his post on November 10th. In the typical British way, Dartmouth was not shunted out of power entirely. Rather, he received a new position as Lord Privy Seal, which was still in the cabinet, but not directly involved in the war with the colonies. In Dartmouth's place, Prime Minister North appointed George Germain, who had previously been known as Lord Sackville. The new Secretary of State came from a prominent aristocratic family well-established in British society. His godfather was King George I. But as the third son of a duke, Germain was not in line to inherit a title or lands. So as a young man, Germain entered the military, where he served honorably in the War of Austrian Succession. By the beginning of the Seven Years' War, he was in line for a commission as Major General. The leadership even considered granting him the command of North America, the same position that ultimately went to General Braddock. Although passed over for the North American command, Germain served as a general in the European theater. During the Battle of Minden, General Germain refused the orders of the Allied commander, the Prussian Field Marshal Ferdinand of Brunswick, to send the British cavalry to attack the retreating French. The allegation is that Germain did not want the cavalry commander to gain glory for winning the battle. Although the Allies won the battle anyway and protected Hanover from French invasion, Germain's refusal to obey orders in battle resulted in him being cashiered and sent home in disgrace. If he had been more astute, Germain probably would have let the matter drop and begin trying to rebuild his reputation in other ways. But Germain could not let the matter go and demanded a court-martial. The court not only affirmed his dismissal, but declared that he was, quote, unfit to serve his majesty in any military capacity whatsoever, end quote. To really bury his reputation, the court then ordered the verdict to be read to every regiment in the army. King George II struck Germain's name from the Privy Council. 
Now, that could have ended his public life forever. Fortunately, when George II died the following year, his successor, George III, tended to like anyone that his grandfather disliked. Germain, then serving as a member of parliament, slowly built favor with the new king and his ministers, including Lord North. His political prospects also improved more in 1769, when a distant relative died and left Germain some land. Although I've been calling him Lord Germain through this entire introduction, he actually went by Lord Sackville until this time and changed his name to Germain after inheriting these lands. Now, Germain's positions in Parliament consistently favored taking a harder line against the colonies. Now that the North Ministry was ready to take a very hard line, Germain seemed like a good candidate to oversee the ministry's war in America as Secretary of State for Colonial Affairs. So with Germain in place as Secretary of State, the ministry pushed forward with its plans to raise and deploy 30,000 soldiers in America. The wealthy aristocrats running the government were ready to compel obedience, whatever the cost. But the British people were in no mood to pay higher taxes to build the necessary army. High debt from the last war would make loans more difficult and more expensive. Even so, it had to be done. In August, King George began looking at the option of hiring German armies rather than recruiting at home. Renting Germans would actually be cheaper than raising British troops, since German soldiers received even lower pay than the poorly paid British soldiers. German princes, eager to raise cash and give their armies something to do in peacetime, were willing to make a deal. The king began negotiations in Europe for a rented army. The king also reached out to Russia, but Empress Catherine would not assist him. The king finally struck a deal with the German state of Hesse Castle. Hesse Castle was a neighbor of King George, who was still the elector of Hanover. The prince of Hesse Castle was a son-in-law of King George II, although his wife, George III's Aunt Mary, had died a couple of years earlier. Hesse Castle was a small but heavily militarized state. All boys had to register for service beginning at age 7 and could be drafted as early as age 16. All males had to serve in the military and drill at least a few weeks each year, unless they received an exemption from the prince. If you were unemployed or got into legal trouble, you would likely find yourself enlisted in the army. The single largest source of revenue for the state was renting out soldiers as mercenaries. Like the British Army, Discipline was brutal and pay was terrible. But civilian pay for unskilled laborers in Hesse was even worse than military pay. Also, families of soldiers in Hesse got certain tax breaks and other benefits. These encouraged families to enlist some of their children in the army. The state also instilled the value of militarism in its people who took pride in the state's military reputation. In November 1775, King George informed Lord North that he had contracted to have 4,000 Hessians sent to America to supplement the British troops. These would be the first of nearly 30,000 Hessians who would come to America over the course of the Revolution. With Britain's political dispute with the colonies erupting into all-out war, the French government began to perk up and take notice. France, of course, was still smarting from its loss to Britain in the Seven Years' War just over a decade earlier. 
where, among other things, it lost Canada. France was still recovering from that war and was in no mood to start another one with Britain. At the same time, if France could do anything to make life more difficult for Britain and force the British to expend men and resources in America, France was happy to facilitate that. It was not only payback, keeping one's enemy weak helped prevent that enemy from launching a future attack against you. In August 1775, French Foreign Minister, the Comte de Vergennes, sent 26-year-old Juliard Alexandre Achard de Bonvoulois to America to look at the colonists and see if they could really become a thorn in Britain's side. Bonvoulois had more than simple authority to observe. He could make contact with the Continental Congress and begin covert diplomatic relations. Of course, all of this was quite informal. France could not recognize the colonies independently of Britain, nor engage in open diplomacy with them. It certainly could not openly provide military assistance. Any of that would result in Britain declaring war on France, something the French really did not want at this time. If the British discovered Bonvoulois in America, the French government would simply deny that he had any authority. So Bonvoulois made his way to Philadelphia. There he began to assess the state of the rebellion. He made contact with key members of Congress and hinted to them that France might be willing to provide some form of covert assistance. Bonvoulois' reports to Paris created the opening that would eventually establish an alliance between France and America that would become critical to winning the war. Outwardly, of course, France was making no moves that would incur British wrath. Paris issued a ban on the sale of any war munitions to American merchant vessels. Despite this ban, American merchants covertly purchased French munitions at the French colony of Hispaniola, what is today Haiti. By banning the trade and then turning a blind eye to the violations of the ban, France could avoid war with Britain while still providing some assistance to the new rebellion. Now, finally, as 1775 came to an end, the North Ministry in London prepared to ship its armies off to America so that they would arrive in time for an early spring offensive. Britain had already banned the colonies from trading with any entity other than Britain, and the colonies themselves had already imposed a trade ban on Britain in protest of the Coercive Acts. So effectively, the two sides had already outlawed all trade. In December, though, Parliament passed the Prohibitory Act, which barred all commerce and trade with the North American colonies. Unlike earlier trade restrictions, the new law authorized the Navy to capture any colonial ship just as they would any ship belonging to a wartime enemy. Ships and cargo would be seized, taken to Admiralty Court, and if found to be involved in colonial trade, sold at auction. The ban also applied to ships of other countries that traded with the colonies. In essence, the British Navy planned to blockade the entire coast of North America. So with all this in place, Britain prepared to start its war in earnest the following spring. Next week, the Patriots go on the offensive in Canada, seizing St. Jean and Montreal.
This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Before I get to this week's book, I want to mention a bit of a setback for the podcast. As you probably know, I often mention the blog that I run along with the podcast. My blog includes a complete transcript of each week's episode, as well as pictures, maps, and links to other sources for more information on the week's topic. I know that some people prefer to read and some listen, which is why I offer the content both ways. But I really think the blog offers a little bit more since it provides sources and maps. I also figure If you listened to an episode and wanted to make sure you remembered something correctly, it would be much easier to look up a quick fact on the blog transcript. For many months, I've posted links on Facebook to each week's blog episode, and that got about 3,000 hits each episode. I also posted links to older episodes on certain anniversaries. So with those combined, I was getting a nice 30 to 40,000 hits per month on the blog. A few weeks ago, Facebook made some changes so that people are no longer seeing my posts. So instead of getting 3,000 views per episode, I'm getting more like 150, about a 95% drop in readership. That's pretty depressing and pretty much all thanks to the whims of Facebook. So if anyone has any good ideas about where I can get my blog in front of history fans on the internet, I'm open to new ideas. I'd really hate to shut down the blog for lack of interest. The good news, though, is that very few Facebook viewers actually downloaded the podcast itself, so my podcast download numbers are still remaining pretty consistent. So thank you all to the podcast listeners for your continued interest. Okay, so today's episode is all about war planning in London. It becomes a trend during the war that each fall the ministry assesses the prior war season and works with top military officials to develop a new strategy for the following year. In hindsight, it seems like each strategy that they develop each year is about two years too late to be effective. And one of the big changes I talked about today was replacing Secretary of State Dartmouth with Secretary of State George Germain. Now, Dartmouth was all about diplomacy and negotiation. Germain wants to use force to show who is in charge. I don't mean to imply that Germain changed the course of colonial relations, 
Clearly, the ministry had already adopted this course and picked Germain because he was in full agreement with it. His role, however, obviously has an impact on how the war unfolds. And for that reason, this week's book recommendation is devoted to Secretary Germain's war years. It's called The American Secretary by Gerald Saxon Brown. Now, the book focuses on Germain, but it's not really a biography. After a really short background, the book focuses on Germain's years as secretary, 1775 to 78, and how officials in London developed and implemented colonial policy in America. Now, admittedly, this is a rather obscure book, and probably best for those who have already read plenty of general books about the area and want to dig a little deeper into how and why British officials dug themselves into a hole during the war that they could not escape. I found the book to be interesting and quite a different perspective from many of the other books that I've read about the Revolutionary War era. The book itself is an old one, first published in 1963. The author was a professor at the University of Michigan who passed away about 20 years ago. He wrote several other more general books about history, and I suspect his motivation for writing this book was one of convenience. The university holds a very large collection of unpublished papers belonging to Lord George Germain, making his research rather convenient. The book itself is fairly short, less than 200 pages of content, with plenty of endnotes to show the research. But it is not dry reading like a textbook. It reads pretty well and covers a topic not covered by many other books on the American Revolution. So if you are interested in reading more on the perspective of the British leadership during the war, you may want to get this book. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.